Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you gave us this time to gather together unto your name. Thank you for your Holy Spirit being in our midst. We thank you that he still is. As we open your word that you anointed our brother James to write, we pray that it not just be ink on paper, but that your spirit would make it come alive to us, maybe differently to each one of us. Lord, let let uh, our hearts and our minds be receptive to your voice. Praying in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, I hope you like studying the scriptures because you're going to be miserable for a while if you don't because that's what we're going to do. And last Sunday, we did an introduction for the letter of James. And I would say that it'd be very important if you weren't here last Sunday, it'd be very important for you to go well, they sound like they're having a party out there in the foyer. Maybe we ought to go out there with them. <laughs> It'd be very important for you to go back and listen or watch. Uh, not because I was so eloquent, but because the information in the introduction really, really sets us up for this letter. So today I've entitled it, The Testing That Produces... Once again, the letter of James, we will go there in a moment. We will read more than one verse today. Um, but to, to glean everything that we need to from this letter, we must remember the target audience of James and their predicament of troubles, poverty, and persecution, that there were 12 tribes scattered throughout the region and because of the scattering, they were being persecuted and they were experiencing these troubles and they were experiencing poverty and persecution uh, at the same time. And these troubles, because there were troubles, because there were persecutions, it led, and it shouldn't have, but it led to conflict and factions, divisions. And that's one of the reasons James writes this letter and I think you're going to agree, if you, if you can't already, that the content, especially today's content, of this letter really meets us where we are. All the things that have been said, all the prayers that have been prayed, here we are in James. And rather than change their circumstances, which they could not do, James deals with how to prepare and respond. When you face things in life, most of the time, you cannot change the circumstances. You want to, and you wonder why you can't, and you wonder who can. But what we really need to be focused on is how do we respond? How do we prepare ourselves for that moment? And how do we respond in that time of trouble and whatever else we're dealing with? Book of James, chapter 1, verse 2, if you would stand with me while I read. And I'm going to read through verse 18 from the English Standard Version. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, and that brothers is non-gender specific. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Some of your versions there will say poor. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow Due to change. And of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You can be seated. And may the Lord add his anointing to the reading of the scripture. Now, I mentioned last week that James doesn't really offer a, uh, a glowing introduction like Paul does. He just says, he writes this letter, and look at the first word of the letter, James. (laughs) James, a servant of God to the 12 tribes, greetings, count it all joy. I mean, he just gets right to it. I like James. He doesn't play. There's no fluff with him. There's no pretense with him. James, this is James, by the way, if you didn't know who wrote this letter, James wrote this letter, count it all joy. (laughs) Because he knew where they were. He met them where they were within just a few words of the beginning of his letter. And when you get to the end of the letter, we're not going to cover that today, but there's no ending. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins, period. He's done. My kind of guy. Count it all joy. Because he knew they were facing trials. He knew they were facing pressures. He knew they were facing circumstances that caused them to just twist their head around what's going on here. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, one of the great things about this passage is, oh, is this yours, Lisa? Yes. Okay, don't blow your top again now. Come on. 
One of the great things about this passage is not no one, including those watching from home and around the country, I guess around the world, I'm not sure. I hope they can understand English. Is that everyone under, everyone can relate to trials and various kinds of trials. And James is saying to us, and when you face these trials, and the word there is really just a, it just really means test. It means approving. When, when we face these, he says, count it as joy. Now, it's not because the trials are joyful. You know, you know, hey, I, I'm glad, I'm glad I, I, I broke my foot or something. I mean, it's not, it's not like that. It's the, it's the joy that comes from knowing that God's doing something. And even if the trial you're facing is a result of your bad choices. Now, you can think of your friends that you can talk to about that because you probably hadn't made any bad choices. But even in the case of bad choices, God will use that. To test you. The writer of Hebrews said, now all discipline seems painful at the moment, not joyful. Would you agree? Boy, would you agree? But watch this. But later, everybody say later. Later. At the moment, not joyful. Later. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. None of us want to face trials. And as I, as I said last week, I'll repeat it this week. Don't go trying to find any. Don't go out looking for, for trials and tribulations and pressures. They'll find you. You don't have to go looking for them. They will find you. But when you do face them, understand that right now, those times are not joyful, but later they will be. So in, in advance of that, count it all joy. Now, when I played baseball back in the day, I had a great little league baseball coach. He, he was, he was beyond, even though, even now that I'm a few years past little league baseball age, I see that he was even, he was beyond what would be a normal Little League baseball coach. You know, some of them just, anyway, I'm not going to get into it. He instructed us. He taught us how to hold the bat. He taught us everything you, you could learn about the game. One of the things he said to us was when we were on defense in, in the field, we like to say, he would say to the shortstop, all right, you got a batter at the plate, you got a runner at first, and there's one out. What are you going to do with the ball when it comes? Don't decide that after the ball comes. You decide before the ball comes. If the ball is hit to me, what am I going to do? Because so many times kids catch that ball, and, and boy, they start looking around, what am I going to do? You decide beforehand. And I'm saying to us today that I think James is saying to us to have our counted all joy cocked and ready to go. 
Because you're going to face various kinds of trials. All aspects of life. Health issues. Job issues. Relationship issues. Things just not going the way you want it. You're going to face it. A lot of you sitting here today are facing it right now. Everybody say a lot. Because you know. Peter even addressed this when he says, dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. When we do that, when something adverse occurs in our life, our immediate response is, hey, who's, who's at fault here? Somebody's got to be, got to blame, got to take the blame for this. Peter, the next verse, says this. Instead, be very glad. Peter and James, did they get together? Be very glad. I'm not telling you today to be a fatalist. I'm not telling you today to rejoice in the harm that's coming to you or the potential harm. I'm telling you to count it all joy because God will take whatever that is and he will use it. For his good and ultimately for your good. Sometimes one of the reasons he's addressing this is sometimes the faith that we possess, it will collapse uh, in before the storm in our life of sorrow and pain and disappointment and whatever it may be. Many times when we're faced with adverse circumstances, our faith crumbles. Why? Because we're, we're, uh, focusing on what we're facing instead of counting it all joy. Instead of, okay, God, what are you going to do with this? Many times if I, if I feel like I'm in a situation where the walls are closing in, by the way, squeezing is good. Many times I say to God, okay, uh, you got me here. So do what you want to do and do what you're going to do. Let's not waste this moment. Count it all joy. We say that we believe in God as our father. But as long as our faith, as long as your faith remains untested on the point of our belief, it falls short of steady conviction. Unless it's tested, see, by the way, when you're tested, when God sends trials or allows trials to come into your life, it's not because he wants to see how you're going to do. God's not waiting with a chalkboard. Okay, let's see how he's going to do. He already knows how you're going to do. You know who doesn't know how you're going to do? You. You don't know. And so he allows us to be tested so that we can see Where our faith is, more importantly, where our faith isn't. And until we're tested, we don't know. Somebody said, you don't even really have faith until it's been tested. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. There are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. The gospel that says nothing bad or uncomfortable is ever going to happen to you is a false gospel. It's a false message. 
It's a false message for us to teach the younger generation that if they'll come to Christ, everything will be rosy. A friend of mine said, uh, yeah, I thought when I came to Christ, everything was going to be roses. And they failed to tell me that roses have thorns. William Barclay said trials, or the word trials here, is not temptation in the sense of the term. It is testing. It is trial or testing directed towards an end, and the end is that he who is tested should emerge stronger and pure from the testing. There's a reason. There's a goal. There's an intended purpose. John Calvin said something similar. He said, these trials are not afflicted by chance, but through the infallible providence of God. Do you remember Satan going before God? First of all, that he had to go. He had to present himself before God. And he said, you you know, God said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, yeah, I considered him all the time, but you won't let me get at him. I don't tell you something. We had a discussion Wednesday night in our home group about the misconception that God gave Satan authority in the earth. Let me just dispel that. He did not. He did not. If he had given Satan authority, he wouldn't have had to ask permission to go get Job. The late Arne Baxter used to say that when Adam sinned, God took the authority and the responsibility of the earth and he put it in his pocket until one would come along who was worthy to give it back. And of course, that was the first Adam failed. The last Adam did not. I might write a kernels of truth on this whole issue, so I'm not going to deal with it now. But God's infallible providence, in that case, in the case of Job, God said, okay, I'll let you, I'll let you touch. You can't kill him, but I'll let you do whatever you want to do. That's why I always say nothing touches us except it goes through the fingers of God. But why didn't he stop it? You ever figured out that God's smarter than you? He knows the end. So what James is talking about is a testing that produces steadfastness. He labels us, he says some people are unstable in all their ways. One of the things that's concerned me for many years are Christian people who are unstable in all their ways. It doesn't take anything, any kind of issue, any kind of problem. Anything, all of a sudden, they have derailed themselves off their faith. I went to high school with with a bunch of kids. Um, I'm not going to label what they were because I don't think that labeled. But anyway, and man, they would be on fire. Sometimes it bothers me, the on fire thing. Because if you're on fire, eventually your fire is going to burn up. And you're depending on fire instead of a steady faith. In the Lord Jesus. I had them take youth youth on fire off of our van because of that. We don't have that van anymore. But people, these people would be on, they'd be, woo, 
And then something would occur in their life. And they'd say, well, I backslid. And then they'd come to me and they'd say, I got to get saved again. I said, what are you, a yo-yo Christian? Unstable. And James is saying that a lot of people are unstable in all their ways, but the testing that we can count joy towards will produce in us steadfastness. I don't know who Sophie Laws is. It's a lady who did some commentaries. I couldn't find any biography on her. But she made this statement that this is active steadfastness in rather than passive submission to our circumstances. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being, we're talking about staying power. We're talking about the word actually means to stand under the pressures, to stand under the trials, to not be crushed by the trials. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Yeah, we take some shots. Yeah, we take some some arrows. But at the end of the day, if we're steadfast, we're still standing. Now, we may be standing under, and I'll read a verse in a moment that says that. We may be standing under circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean under in the sense that we're underground. It means that it's not crushing us. We're still standing. The full effect of steadfastness is that he says would be perfect and complete. In the ESV, I know there are different wordings. But the full effect of our being steadfast and allowing this testing to produce that step. By the way, you cannot develop steadfastness without the testing. You can't just uh, take a pill. You can't go to Walmart and buy it. You can't even read a Bible verse and get it. But it's the testing. Read the Bible verses because they'll help you get through the testing. But the testing is what produces steadfastness. The word perfect is a word we're familiar with, teleos. It really means completeness. It means to be fully developed or grown. It does not mean sinless, by the way. It does not mean that you have no more sin and no more issues. Because in the biblical sense of this verse and others like it, you can be perfect and still have an issue with sin. I don't mean living in sin, but you're a human being. But it means to be complete, fully grown. The other word, of course, it's interesting that the ESV uses the word complete, or the second word, and it means to be complete in every part. Every part of our being. It means that the removal of the dross from our lives. Malachi covers very clearly the matter of making silver or whatever may be the case, and the dross rises to the top and you scoop it off and you leave what's pure. Okay. 
He says the, the full effect of being steadfast is that you become fully grown, complete in your very nature, and that that every part of your being is complete because God has removed the draws. That never happens except in testing. It cannot happen and it will not happen except that we face adverse circumstances. And he says in verse 4, lacking in nothing. Now we're, we're not talking about lacking in material goods. We're not talking about even stuff, but lacking in nothing that you need to be a complete and steady Christian and follower of Jesus Christ. And then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. So wisdom through testing. Why, when you first read this, and maybe you weren't like me, when you first read this, you think, well, he just stuck this in here. What has that got to do with what he's talking about? It has everything to do. What's interesting is that verse 4 ends with these words, lacking in nothing. Verse 5 begins, if any of you lacks. If any of you lacks. J.B. Phillips' translation words it this way, if any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem. If, you, if you're facing whatever it may be, you immediately need wisdom from God on how to respond to that. Because you can get mad. You can get depressed. You can be vindictive if you think someone's to blame for your circumstances. But wisdom helps you deal with the circumstances. And he said, if you don't have that particular wisdom, or as J.B. Phillips said, if you don't know how to meet that particular problem, ask God. What a novel idea that we would ask God. James is saying, where can I find the wisdom and the understanding to get me through this testing in the proper way? Where can I find the wherewithal to not respond negatively or wrongly? In this moment. Now I could write the book. On responding wrongly. In the moment. And many of you. Could write some of the chapters. I've, I've broken so many things. In our early marriage. Not my wife. I never hit my wife. I wouldn't be living today if I had. <laughs> I can tell you that. But I understand. Being faced with an adverse circumstances and reacting and responding the wrong way. Instead of saying, God, give me the wisdom for this. Because I don't know what to do here. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. I love those three words. Sometimes people, especially pastors, and they need to learn those three words. Because I hear people answer questions. And I think to myself, you'd have been better off just to say, I don't know. The nonsense that you gave them. If a person feels that he doesn't have the wisdom for the experiences of life. And by the way, no one in themselves possesses that wisdom. Just let him ask him or her ask of God. And God will give it. 
What we're looking for is a wisdom that sees all of life as serving the purposes of the Lord. All of life. Do not compartmentalize your life. I got my Christian life and I got my job life. I got my religious life and I got my recreation. Don't compartmentalize your life. Your life is your life. And your life should be serving God in every aspect of what you do. Uh, You've heard me say, and I'll not repeat it, but I'll repeat it again. That if Jesus is a very important part of your life, that you're lacking. You've missed it. Jesus cannot be a very important part of your life. He has to be your life. All of your life, not a part. And he says, you need to ask God, but not doubting. Well, that makes sense. Why would I doubt? Because maybe I don't really believe God. That's a sad state. That's a sad state. And he says, a person who's doubting is basically holding on to two worlds. God, I ask you for this. I'm still holding on to my own solution over here. But help me with this. And, and James said, you're not getting a thing. You better let go of the other part of the world. Matter of fact, in the Hebrew, the word really means two minds. And some of the, the uh, scholars think it means two souls. And I don't, I don't mean there literally is two souls, but we act like we have two souls. And that person who doubts, that person who cannot let go and let God is driven and tossed by the wind and the wind are the circumstances that we're facing. That person is unstable. That person is one who can never keep a steady course. The issue is here that we would keep a steady course through whatever it is that we face. Through whatever it is. And then he's just really, again, wonder why is this? He's a tester. And his testing is no respecter of persons. He said, hey, rich or poor. And they could, he could have used any category. This is not about money. He could have used any two categories to compare. But he said, now those who are, they need to boast and they need, which means to rejoice in their, in their situation. To the, to the one who has financial adversities, the poor man says, how rich I am. To the one who's lacking in material goods, he says, I'm wealthy because I have God. And to the, uh, in view of his earthly wealth, the rich man says, what a wretch I am. Not that he's not putting himself down, but they're both looking at life in a perspective of eternity. And he said, what James is saying is, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're whatever, you're going to face adversity. And so don't let your, your, Possessions determine how you respond. Hmm. And then, blessed is the man who remains, or woman, steadfast. Watch this, under trial. I'll tell you that today that the blessing comes from remaining steadfast under the trial. If you want the blessing, you're going to have to remain steadfast 
in whatever it is you're going through or whatever it is you will go through. It creates a person who is proven to have sterling worth. It's like a metal that's been cleansed of all the alloy in it. We referenced that earlier. And the weakness of our character is eradicated. And we emerge strong and pure. We emerge. Because why? Because we stood steadfast under the trial. Now, if you're not experiencing trials or pressures or adverse circumstances, or you don't know what I'm talking about, just hang on. You have a great experience awaiting you. I, I, I pray for nothing ill to anybody. But I do pray that God in his sovereignty will test us. Say, man, don't pray for me. Okay. And then he says, hey, and here's the deal. You're going to receive the crown of life. It is, that's good. That's good news. And then he gets into this part about trials and temptations. Because he says, don't be saying I am being tempted by God. Remember, testing, tempted. Testing, tempted. Because people, there were actually some rabbinic teachings of that day that taught that God was the author of evil. And that he would throw temptation at you. And temptation is not testing. Testing is the proving of our character and the producing of steadfastness. Temptation is the temptation to sin. And he said, don't say that God's tempting you because God tempts no one. Because what happens if you're in a pressure cooker? What happens if you're in some really pressurized situations? Whatever be the source. You're tempted. You're tempted if you don't ask God for wisdom to get outside of his plan. And you start thinking in a way that's not God. And you start responding in a way that he never intended. And before you know it, you're being tempted, which is simply to be lured and enticed by your own desire. You get weak. Your, uh, your wall, the walls of your fort become weak. And you can't resist the temptation of the enemy. And you ultimately succumb. That's not testing. Desire, he teaches us that desire, our own desire, our own fleshly desires gives birth to sin. The wanting to satisfy of our own desires creates an atmosphere where sin develops in our lives. And when that desire gives birth to sin, then sin brings forth death. And I don't mean I don't mean that you've lost your salvation and that you're spiritually dead, but I want to tell you that everybody in this room and everybody listening under the sound of my voice understands this. When you succumb to temptation and you allow uh, sin to bring to come into your life, when your desire creates that sin, every one of us understands the nature of death in that moment in our life. 
And James is saying, don't blame God for your temptation. He's testing you. Yes. He's not tempting you. That's you. That's on you. He finishes up by communicating to us the unchangeable nature of God. He wants us to understand that this God who is allowing, maybe even producing the testing or the circumstances that would test us. He wants us to understand this is still a good God. We always say, well, these great things happen to me. Isn't God good? I want somebody to get up and testify. My life has been a living hell. Isn't God good? Because he is. It's not just when everything's going great that God's good. I mean, the fact that God will test us to make us steadfast, that's a good God. And James is saying to, to the, the, the readers of this letter and to you and to me, I, I got it in the Granger paraphrase. I haven't published this. Won't. But anyway, do not let life's difficulties cause you to embrace the thought that God is punishing you and working against you. Because you know that's where we go. What did I do? Where did I go wrong? Who did I make mad? What did I not do? We all go there. Why is God on me? Why is God allowing this to happen to me? We are, everybody goes there. And James is saying, you got to avoid that. You got to avoid that place because you have to understand that every good and every perfect gift that you have comes from above. From a good God. Comes down from the father of light. Did you hear the word down? From heaven. So this God who's giving you every good and every perfect gift and is coming down from the Father of lights, this is the same God who's allowing the stuff to happen in your life. Why does he do that? Because he cares. There's no variation in God. He said, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, this is the great part, you are not consumed. Implication is if God could change, he would consume us. He'd burn you up. Our Lord, do not change. So the same God who gives good and perfect gifts is the same God who allows the trials, the adverse circumstances to come in your life. And then he reminds us that he is the one who caused us to be born again By the word of truth. If he didn't care about us, if he was opposed to us, he would have never allowed us to be born again. He would have never drawn us by the spirit of God with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. He'd have never bothered with you and he'd have never bothered with me. And yet he did. That ought to be a clue. So that we could be the first fruits of his creatures. We could be part, if you will, of this new race of people. Of which Jesus Christ was the first. The first fruit are the creatures. There's an original formation or he, to fabricate. When you were born again, God refabricated you. Your spirit, your heart. He put a new spirit in you. You know where that comes from. 
the Old Testament. Put a new spirit in you. He took his laws and he wrote them inside of you. And in your mind, he created something new. And so Paul says, for anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all, everybody say all. All things have become new. Is this a God who would abandon us? Is this a God who would suddenly oppose us? Is this a God who would suddenly neglect us? No. It's a God who loves us enough to let us go through our stuff. So in conclusion, and I think this is uh, what James was after, how we respond to our trials and testing determines the value we gain from the experiences. Don't let the experiences go to waste. Don't let the experiences uh, n- not create the value. And then so working backwards, and I'm going to, this is, I'm going to finish up. Working backwards, starting in verse uh, four. So he's looking for us to be lacking in nothing. And the way we're going to be lacking in nothing is to be perfect and complete. And how we get to perfect and complete is because of the effect of being steadfast. And how do we develop and assume the effect of being steadfast? We do it through testing of various kinds that produces steadfastness. And what do we do in the midst of these testings of various kinds that produce steadfastness is that we consider it all joy, knowing the resulting benefit in our lives. And I think that's why he starts off his letter this way. And I think that's why on February the 27th in 2022, that this scripture is what we're looking at today because this is where we are. Not just we, this church, we, God's people, we, this nation, we, this world, this is where we are. And the fact is, this is where we're going to be for a while to come. Stand with me.